0: Great Plains prairies are struggling to survive, in part because of trees. And then there's different brushes, too. Sericea Lespediza is the one that drives us in the Flint Hills absolutely crazy. It should be right up a heroin and cocaine. You shouldn't be able to get it. <laughs> Hear more on the podcast Up From Dust. Up to date wants to know what you're talking about with family and friends. You can text UTD to 816-601-4777 to tell us. Again, 816-601-4777. This is Up to Date on KCUR 893. Well, how is the news media performing in this country? How is it changing? Few people in America are in as good a position to answer those questions as Margaret Sullivan. Margaret is the former public editor of the New York Times. She was the media critic for the Washington Post, and she was the first woman to serve as the top editor of the Buffalo News. She's also the author of two books, Ghosting the News, Local Journalism, and the Crisis of American Democracy, and her most recent book, Newsroom Confidential, Lessons and Worries from an Ink-Stained Life. And she's a newly Chris and visiting professor at Duke University. Margaret Sullivan, welcome to Up to Date. So good to have you on this show.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm so pleased to be with you and your listeners.
0: So, you know, has journalism lost its voice of authority? And if so, can it ever get it back?
1: Well, one thing that's happened over the past 50 years or so is that the trust in the news media has really plummeted. Right. Uh, at the time of the mid 70s after watergate and after the pentagon papers were published there was and i mean i'm not necessarily tying those things to high trust but it's just the fact that trust in the news media was quite high like in the mid in the mid 70 percentile mm-hmm. 76 percentile um that has dropped precipitously year after year after year and so um it's low now it's certainly well below 50 percent and sometimes depending on what you look at it could be in the 30s so i i do think that the voice of authority from kind of big establishment media has been diminished and there's a lots and lots of reasons for that
0: i was gonna say what are the reasons why has the trust plummeted like it has
1: well, one of the things that's happened is that now we have 24-7 cable news and we have the internet and we have all of this information and sometimes misinformation or even disinformation coming at us all the time. The other thing that's happened and, you know, you kindly mentioned my first book, Ghosting the News, about the decline of local local journalism. Local journalism is actually more trusted, but the business model has been so diminished and newsrooms have been so shrunk uh or shrunken <laughs> the grammarians will have to <laughs> fix that um they have they have gotten smaller let's say that and um and that means that there's just you know there's less content there's less ability to go out and report those stories and meanwhile you know fox news and all the other uh hyper partisan news media are doing their thing. So hmm. I think that all contributes. And people rightfully feel that the news media is biased. And that's the complaint that you hear about the most.
0: So given that, you know, and the fact that trust in the media has plummeted the way that it has, can the media ever get it back? Can it ever be at 76% uh, hmm. trustworthy, at least based on polls uh, across the country? Or is is are those days just gone for good?
1: Well, this of course assumes that we believe in polls, uh, which i have come to I've come to believe, in, especially bit, yeah. in well, in especially in more current years when you know polling has changed so much because of the decline of uh, landlines. But you know, your question is apt. Could trust be restored? And I think it's a tough thing. I think that we can do we in the media can do some things to help that along. One of the things we can do is to explain ourselves better. To our readers and listeners and viewers and to kind of take people behind the curtain and be more transparent. And then I think another thing that needs to happen is that local news needs to be shored up uh, and helped along, not just newspapers, but, you know, the new digital only sites, public radio, radio in general, TV, all of these things can be sustained better, and that will help with trust as well.
0: You know, it's so painful for, you call yourself an ink-stained wretch, and I think I'm sort (laughs) of in that same category. And I tell my students up on the Hill here where I teach that, you know, it's so hard for me because good reporters work so hard to get it right. And if you want to, you know, shake someone awake at three o'clock in the morning, a journalist, you sort of have them wake up and have them wonder, did I spell that name right in the fifth paragraph of the story, exactly. you know, tomorrow? And you know, that idea that there are good people working hard to get it right, that has just been tossed out the window and again you wonder if you can ever get it back.
1: Well I agree with you, Steve, and I've experienced that myself directly. And I do know I know so many journalists because of my many years in Buffalo. Um, And then at the New York Times and at the Washington Post and just getting to know as a media critic, I've gotten to know a lot of journalists. And I think in general, we are people who really care about getting it right, that don't want our work to be biased. You know, we do want to do things that are in the public interest. And then, you know, you see, for example, a local TV crew out going out to cover, um, you know, a school board meeting and being heckled and things thrown at them and being called fake news and all of that. I think that's really been a terrible development and it's really sad.
0: I've been in the middle of a crowd when Donald Trump calls out the local media and begins, you know, criticizing media and in all its forms. And that's a bad place to be in a crowd like that.
1: It really is. And, um, you know, I think that former President Trump did a lot of damage as he used the disparagement of the news media as a central part of his initial campaign and then of his administration and then afterwards. And he actually, you know, (laughs) as he so often did, he said the quiet part out loud, right? Mm -hmm. So he actually said to Leslie Stahl um, of CBS News at one point, you know why I do this, right? Meaning, you know why I criticize and disparage the press. It's so when you do a negative story about me, no one will believe it. So, you know, he was pretty upfront about what he was doing, but at the same time and by the same token, it has worked.
0: How much damage did Donald Trump do to the way the media does its work and the way it's viewed by the American people? Because you talk in your book, Newsroom Confidential, about you know, how slow the media was to initially challenge the president in terms of the veracity of so much of what he was saying in the beginning of his term.
1: Yeah, we were slow, I think, to use the word lie, certainly. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think his the the misstatements were, to some extent and to a large extent, called out. But there was a tendency not to say lie because the news leadership, and I find this understandable to some extent, figured, you know, to lie is to do something intentional. And it was it intentional? I mean, we're not inside... Donald Trump's head, right. which is not a bad thing from my point of view. But, um, y- you know, that was, I think, the the given reason for not saying lie. But, you know, I also feel as if the news media did itself a disservice during the intense Trump years by just overloading everyone's circuits with constant Trump coverage to the exclusion of of anything else. And I think at some point people... You know, even people who weren't well disposed towards the president at that time said, wow, this is just too much. And the blend of opinion and news turned a lot of people off.
0: Well, that's what's so tricky here. And it's one of the points, again, you talk about in your book, this idea for uh, a new kind of framing, you call it, of news stories. Again, a tough change to make because most reporters want to be seen as fair and balanced. But you're talking about uh, maybe taking this a step farther. What do you have in mind there?
1: So I think that one of the things that happens, and this is not true just of Trump coverage, of course, but true of a lot of political coverage, and it extends into coverage of climate change and other things, is that because we so badly want to be seen as fair and unbiased, we tend to treat both sides of every controversy or every story right. as roughly equal. Right. And, you know, there's kind of an inside journalism term for that, with which is both sidesing. And, Winnow, if you talk to regular people, folks, news consumers or citizens, they say, yeah, I want both sides. Please don't stop giving me both sides. And I get that. But at the same time, we have to put things in context and we have to be sure that what we're actually getting across is as close to the truth put in context as possible and not just this kind of performative neutrality.
0: Do you see the media moving in the direction that you're suggesting here, Margaret?
1: Somewhat, I mean, I've been very interested to see the coverage of the Biden classified documents that have been found. And while I think that the coverage has been a little bit over the top, like too much, um, a little too prominent given what it is, I also see a real effort to try to bring context to it and to say, okay, this happened and this is substantial and it is a real story, but let's point out the differences between this and taking 300 documents to Mar-a-Lago and then refusing to give them up. I mean, they're very, very different situations. And I think the news media has kind of incorporated that by continually pointing out that these aren't equal things, while at the same time probably overplaying the story, in my view.
0: We'll be right back. Margaret Sullivan is my guest. Her new book, Newsroom Confidential Lessons and Worries from an Ink Stained Life. She's seen as one of the best observers of uh, American media uh, anywhere we have here. You know, one of the themes of your book, Newsroom Confidential, really has to do with the responsibility the news media carries these days when it comes to our democracy and saving our democracy. How much responsibility does the media have at this moment?
1: Well, you know, I think we always have to remember that we are we in the news media are very unusual in that we have a constitutionally protected role. I mean, there's 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 nothing else that has an amendment essentially devoted, at least in part, to protecting our role in in the governance of our country. So, you know, we need to remember that we have a job which is to inform the public and to do it properly, and that our job is not to get the most clicks and it's not to get the most corporate profits, but it is to inform citizens so that they can be self-governing. And I think we've kind of lost touch with that to some extent, and some of that is because we have had to, you know, there are so many pressures, competitive pressures, uh, financial pressures on journalists and on news leadership that we've kind of, I think, only in the back of our heads do we recognize, oh, yeah, we actually have a public mission here, and that should be first and foremost. Hmm.
0: How much trust do you have in the media these days, and why has that trust maybe declined over the years? That's a question for our listeners. You know, And yet, Margaret, you have the media these days split between liberal outlets and conservative outlets, and certainly some in the Middle, we can't seem to agree on a common set of facts. People only read what they're likely to agree with. Again, you just wonder is it possible at this point to reverse course and get the genie back in the bottle?
1: Right. We're really in our echo chambers. There's no question about that. And I think social media, whether Facebook or Twitter or whatever it may be, has really exacerbated that so that you know you for people who are on Facebook, for example, you tend to want to tune out or unfollow or block people who don't agree with you. And so you hear the things from your own cohort, and then you, it, you get even more entrenched. I think that, you know, one of the things, one of the factors here is that people, regular citizens, uh, need to take some responsibility for being well-informed. And I think it's really important to compare and contrast so that you you aren't just watching MSNBC, you aren't just, um, you know, for example, reading the New York Times, you're not just watching Fox News, You, you know, that you make an effort to sort of see what's being said and how it's being reported out there. And you don't have to do a research project on every story. But if you see something that seems a little off, it's worth checking around and it's absolutely worth checking around before you share it on social media, which is something that happens far too often.
0: You're suggesting that news consumers need to be active in the way they consume the news.
1: Absolutely. Because we and it's hard because we have this kind of fire hose of information just blasting at us all the time, often from our phones. And so, and this is another part of the problem. It's very guess the technical term for it would be disaggregated it's all coming at us in sort of the same form so it's not as if in the old days you'd read the newspaper and you'd see okay this is the news section and now you know this is the opinion section and these are the editorials it's all kinda one thing and it's not very well labeled and it's not very well differentiated so it all sort of seems like a big blob and I think it's hard for people to take a minute and say what exactly is this that i'm consuming
0: you write about the impact of the right-wing media in newsroom confidential you wrote this about the january 6 attack on the capitol you write, uh, it was clear to me that the mob that stormed the Capitol could not have existed in a country that hadn't been radicalized by the news they consumed day after day and the spinning of that news by the likes of Hannity, Tucker Carlson, and Laura Ingram, the prime time stars of Fox News. And I'm wondering, Margaret, have you seen the right-wing media pull back at all in the wake of the January 6 attacks?
1: Maybe a little. I think one of the really interesting things that's happened is that Fox and some of the other ultra conservative, if that's the right term, um, media outlets have been sued over the way they depicted the election uh, process. So they've been sued by these voting machine companies, Dominion and Smartmatic for billions of dollars. And that tends to get your attention so that you might be a little more careful next time. Mm -hmm. And I and I really do think that, you know, things that don't work don't seem to work are advertising boycotts or people complaining on Twitter. But what does seem to make something of a difference is the idea that, oh, we actually might be held accountable and have a big financial price to pay for misinformation that we're putting out there and fostering. So, you know, ha- has there been a major change? I mean, it's mm, I probably not. But I do think there's perhaps a little bit more awareness that there can be a price to pay.
0: You wrote that you almost felt sorry for some of the writers because they so clearly <laughs> were the victims of a poisoned media system. What you're saying yes. there is the power of the media can't be underestimated.
1: Yes, I remember reading my old paper, uh, which I'm still very uh, avidly a reader of, the Buffalo News, right. had interviewed some people who, would you know, some regular folks, again, who had shown up at the, uh, at Jan- at the January 6th uh, riot and participated in it. And it was clear to me that they truly believed that the election had been stolen. They they used Donald Trump as their primary news source, which is never a good idea, and that they were convinced that they had to do something to be to fulfill their role as patriots. Now, that's irresponsible on their part, because there was a lot of good information out there that they could have been taking in, but they didn't. And and I, you know, I, I, I can't fully feel sympathetic with them, but I am disheartened that they didn't have a better standard of information uh, or didn't seek out better information so that they would not do things that have, in some cases, landed them in prison.
0: You know, I'm wondering about sort of the financial state of uh, newspapers these days. I mean, there are national papers like the Times and the Post uh, where you worked, and then there are regional newspapers like the Kansas City Star where I was for so many years, the Buffalo News that you led, Mm -hmm. Margaret. I was under the impression that the national papers were doing really well, but I just saw an announcement that the Post Mm -hmm. is actually cutting jobs. The Washington Post is. What's going on there?
1: Well, I mean— Certainly, for a time, and and you know, over the past decade, it's been those big newspapers, the Times and the Post, and the Wall Street Journal, um, and honestly, that's about it, that have done pretty well and that have been profitable, and have you know managed to avoid some of the really bad issues that have plagued local newspapers. And the reason for that is that they were able to seek and find a a, a national and sometimes even global audience. Hmm. But what's happened now is with, you know, the the, you know, with inflation, with the fact that advertising has dropped, with the fact that Trump is out of office and there is somewhat less, you know, daily fear that the country is sort of falling into the ocean, um, there's a little bit less intense uh, following of these news organizations. And so it's hitting them too. And I think that, you know, I know that the Post leadership has said they're actually going to keep their overall uh, newsroom numbers about the same, but they're going to cut some jobs and then keep hiring other people. I mean, that's very, very painful for me to see, uh, Mm -hmm. because I, I know so many of the people who've been affected by this already the post uh, just ended its Sunday magazine and you know dismissed Mm. its Pulitzer Prize winning dance critic and you know that's that's very personal and very tough to see but you know I think the answer to your question overall is that now even those big outlets that have been somewhat immune to the pressures the financial pressures are feeling them more now.
0: You know, leadership of the New York Times talking about the potential of that organization to one day have 100 million, 100 million subscribers, both online and, and print. Uh, they are roughly, what, 10, 15 million, somewhere in that range right now. What a, what a thing that would be.
1: Well, it's, you know, the Times has done, I would say, a brilliant job of building its digital subscription base. And one of the ways they've done that, interestingly to me, is not, it's not about the news coverage or not solely about the news coverage is they have, you know, gone into the business of word puzzles and cooking apps and all of this stuff that people really want. And they've bundled those together so that if you want that stuff, and many people do, that you you know you have to buy the higher rate of subs- subscription. So they've been very smart about it. I, I mean those numbers that you just quoted seem uh, unrealistic to me, right. uh, but I guess you know a few years ago we might have thought that they'd never be where they are right now. Yeah, no kidding. So the Times has certainly done a fantastic job of of you know building and you know sustaining themselves financially and you know, they, it is a great paper. It's, it is not a, I say paper, although we don't really experience it that way. It's hardly flawless, but it is, you know, it does some work that you're, you know, I think you can legitimately be in awe of, and we should be very glad that the times exist.
0: Margaret Sullivan is my guest. Her latest book, Newsroom Confidential. She's seen as one of the top media critics anywhere in the country these days. You now, I was really struck. You, you talk in the book about your work as public editor of The Times and the critiques you did in that job of how the newspaper did its job. That instantly made you something of a person of suspicion to every <laughs> reporter and editor you approached in that newsroom. What did you learn about how how open to criticism reporters and editors are these days?
1: Well, I think it's human. You know, so the job of public editor for your your audience who might not know, it's basically an ombudsman. So you're kind of an internal critic and a representative <clears throat> of the readers of the Times. So when there are complaints or when I would see things that I thought were wrong, I would write about them in the very pages or on the very website of the New York Times, and it's. It's human nature, I think, to feel sensitive about criticism and to kind of become defensive. And I know that if I were someone who had written a story and the public editor had decided to examine it closely and perhaps uh, write something about it that wasn't very favorable, I'm sure I would feel the same way. Having said that, I think that people at The New York Times may be particularly thin-skinned because, after all, they've reached this pinnacle of journalism, and shouldn't they be somewhat untouchable at that point? So it was an uncomfortable position. I write about uh, some of the incidents uh, that came up, whether it was uh, an obituary that came under fire or Elon Musk complaining about a Tesla test drive or, you know, just a million different things that came up every day. And the kind of tension that I felt that was really built into the job and not entirely comfortable. So while it was a great privilege to do that job, I was pretty
0: glad when it was over. You know, one of your strongest critiques during your time at the New York Times uh, involved the newspaper's coverage of Hillary Clinton's 2016 campaign, especially the controversy toward the end of that campaign about her use of a private email server. You didn't think the media at large played fair with her. Why? Why was that?
1: well everybody fell in love with that story and it again it was like what we were talking about earlier this kind of false equivalence there was so much about trump that was questionable and so now there was this sort of supposed scandal and you know i think we can agree that her email practices were far from perfect but i don't think it amounted to the i know that it did not amount to anything like the kind of obsession that the news media had with it and then at the very end when it really mattered when jim comey the fbi director came back and reopened the case the media went crazy with it and the new york times devoted the entire top of its front page to several stories and photographs and headlines about this and i think it made a difference i mean did it make the difference perhaps not but it certainly Um, Was not a good thing for the Clinton campaign and was a very, very good thing for the Trump campaign. So it was, you know, it was a failure of uh, perspective. And it was a failure to keep things in their proper context.
0: Hmm. You know, you end the book, and maybe it's a good way to bring our conversation to an end, with a story about an assignment you took on toward the end of your time at The Washington Post, in which you had a chance to interview uh, one of your idols, someone you had such great admiration for, which was Joni Mitchell. The story reminded you in so many ways about how cool it is to be a journalist. Tell us about that. And I've got uh, about a minute. Sure.
1: So I was assigned to do a piece about Joni Mitchell who was getting a uh, an award from the Kennedy Center. Right. And uh you know, I was the idea was I was going to go out and find her in California or British Columbia, wherever she might be, but she didn't want to do the interview. She really doesn't do press interviews. So I ended up doing a story about how I thought that and Spark was her greatest album despite <laughs> the fact that people think blue is her greatest album mm-hmm. and i got so much response to it and it was a way to kind of do a workaround. i couldn't interview her but i could write about her And it was a lot of fun, and it did remind me that I love journalism, and I love the chance to talk to people about things that I'm passionate about, and to write on deadline, and to get the job done, no matter what the obstacles might be.
0: And reading that story, I felt so badly for you that you never had a chance to interview her.
1: Well, maybe that'll come. Who knows?
0: (laughs) That's Margaret Sullivan, her new book, Newsroom Confidential Lessons and Worries from an Ink-Stained Life. And can't tell you how much i enjoyed the book margaret and how much i've appreciated your work uh, critiquing the media over the years thank you so much for your time today
1: thanks for having me and thank you for saying that you
0: bet up to date is a production of kcur 89.3 our theme music was composed by the great bobby watson the program is produced by danny alexander zach wilson elizabeth ruiz and reginald david our engineer is paul nakatura i'm steve kraske thanks for listening